Hello, my name's James Bagley. And I'm Lucy Chaw. And this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. What is water diplomacy? Will climate change result in increased conflict over water? And what should countries and organisations be doing to make sure the world works together on water access? In today's episode, we discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Naho Miramachi, reader in environmental politics and lead for the King's Water Hub. The Hub is home to research expertise on water, environment and development. The Hub spans social and physical sciences to explore the challenges of water governance from global to local. Naho joined me on World Water Day as we discussed the critical need to understand the impacts of climate change and development on international water access. We also looked at why these issues are not unique to developing nations and would increasingly be a factor in all our daily lives. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps us reach more listeners. Naho spoke to me from her home here in London. I started by asking how they're holding up in this third national lockdown. Doing okay, keeping it slow and steady. Um, I'm trying to sort of take each day as it comes, take each week as it comes. But we're also in the run-up to World Water Day later this month in March, so I'm really excited for that as well. Yes, and that perfectly segues into why we've got you on today's podcast. It is World Water Day, and we wanted to talk to you about some of your research, some of the work that goes on at King's. And in particular, this idea of water diplomacy and just to unpack why there is such a thing, why it exists in the world and some of the challenges uh, that are posed. So first of all, what is water diplomacy? Yeah, that's a really interesting and fundamental question. Um, what, water diplomacy is a wide range of things. It's, it's not just one thing. It's, it's a range of activities. It can be about negotiations between states who share a river. It can be uh, diplomatic talks that are happening between heads of departments, uh, ministers, uh, even presidents or prime ministers. It can be about joint studies. It can be about joint technical teams coming together to do some sort of fact finding. And it very much is about how the geopolitical competition of water gets mediated. So there are over 260 international river basins. Uh, They can be rivers or lakes that are shared by two states or more. And so when we've got so many of these, you know, 260 plus, Water diplomacy works to try and figure out how such geopolitical competition of water can be understood, analysed, as well as tackled. And I guess coming from an outsider's perspective, we are perhaps more aware of flashpoints, conflict driven by resources. And I suppose the one that comes to mind is oil. But should water be seen or increasingly viewed as as something like that, like a resource in which we could see possible conflicts, disputes, and and we should approach it in those terms? Certainly, water is a very contentious resource. Uh, There's a lot of debate, a lot of of, um, competition over water. And, and of course, there is conflict over water in the sense that uh, people do have to secure enough water for whatever economic activity, whether it's for agriculture, irrigation, for producing energy through hydropower, or just simply having enough water 
to, to drink and keep clean and, and to have a good level of sanitation. So water is very fundamental to life, very fundamental to, to people, to communities, to countries, to nations, etc. But I wouldn't say that water has been a sort of acute armed military conflict in the sense that there has been no water war in the past between states. States have never engaged in these heavily violent uh, militarized uh, conflict just because of water, just over water. It's always been wrapped up in various uh, tensions, diplomatic tensions, geopolitical rivalries, etc. But there has been no evidence of water war between states. But certainly there have been communities, farmers who have resorted to violence to stake their claim over water, to ensure that their families, communities can access water that's safe, have enough water, etc. So on, on one hand, the, the sort of state to state violence is non-existent over water. But at the local level, we do see a lot of skirmishes, a lot of um, incidents over individuals, communities on securing water. So I think it's really important to keep the scale in mind when we talk about water conflicts. Quite often when we talk about big river basins shared by multiple states, um, like the Nile, for example, the Nile is, is a very popular one. It's often in the media as well. Um, there certainly is a lot of water diplomacy and water conflict going on, but I wouldn't say it's in the form of acute militarized water war, certainly not at all. If anything, there's been a lot of talk and debate and, and discussion over the Nile. Before we get on to talk about, I guess, some of the, the things you're grappling with in your research and, and some of the key ways in which water diplomacy takes place, I mean, reading ahead of this episode, and, and we were just speaking beforehand, it was striking, actually, that rivers such as the Nile play such an important role in people's lives beyond simply the kind of logistics or the kind of providing for. They actually play a kind of cultural role in people's lives. I mean, is that, is that a key component of this topic, is understanding that actually water systems, rivers, lakes go back deep into people's kind of collective memories? I think that's a really interesting point and an important point as well, because there's a lot of cultural association with the river. If you look at folklore, if you look at um, music, if you look at poetry, there's a lot of a lot of this art around um, the rivers as well, and also religious associations with a, a river or a sacred body of water. So there definitely is uh, an important cultural element to it. And also when we think about dams, you know, when, when dams are built, quite often people have to be resettled because the dam would fill up and it would inundate their villages or their ancestral homes. And then you have this process where you are distanced from your ancestral lands, your ancestral roots, and that brings apart, uh, bring, brings about a very important cultural element. It's not just about concrete and how much concrete you pour in to make the dam and the engineering, etc. There very much is this cultural element as well. What are the kind of key drivers of of water diplomacy or the, the causes and needs for water diplomacy in the world today? It's really interesting because in many parts of the world, for example, where I've worked in uh, Southern Africa, South and Southeast Asia, water is absolutely vital for various economic activities, such as farming, such as hydropower, as we just talked about. 
And the drivers for water diplomacy is very much about how you can secure water and good enough quality water to do all these economic activities. And whether it's agriculture, whether it's for hydropower, um, these activities happen in different places at different times at different scales and if you have a very large river there could be lots of activities economic development activities like irrigation schemes or hydropower development projects in the upstream which will have downstream impacts so the the drivers for water diplomacy is trying to get a grasp of what kinds of priorities there are around water use who should get access to this water use, how how, um, water quality should be understood, how the impacts, the ecological, the social economic impacts of using water in one place might have onto another. These are all the kind of things that need to be considered and therefore drive water diplomacy debates, negotiations, scientific studies, etc., I guess the thing that comes to to mind when we think of threats to water or a lack of water is climate change or things driven by unsustainable development. Is that a key driver of why this is becoming an ever greater issue? Or is that not the only one? We We should think about it more broadly. Well, I think there's many sides of the story to this in the sense that, as I say, if water is so fundamental to many economic activities like agriculture, agriculture uses between 70 to 90 percent of all water use. It depends on where you are in the world, but roughly it's between 70 to 90 percent. So if that much amount of water is going into agriculture, then thinking about sustainable development in the agricultural sector becomes very important. But at the same time, uh, we know that there's a lot of uncertainty out there as a result of climate change, as a result of droughts, as a result of flooding, for example. And so thinking about how you can prioritize your water use in amidst this situation of, of uncertainty is becoming a major concern for many governments, for local communities um, and other people who, who want to use the water. So Water has multiple uses. Um, it's, it's for food, it's for energy, it's for the development of urban city centers, it's for people to have clean and safe sanitation. But also we, we are operating in a context where the hydrological conditions might be changing, the food demands and global trade patterns might be changing. There might be internal and external migration. And so urban cities might be growing, peri-urban areas might be growing and lots of pressures around health and safety as we are in this pandemic. We know how important water is for sanitation and keeping clean and good public health. So all of these, so many, so many uses and so many dimensions of water come into play and therefore put pressures on the available water and also the quality of water as well. In your research, you discuss the case or some of your research, you discuss the case of the Mekong Valley. And what I guess is interesting about that is that it it layers on all those things that you've discussed and all those complexities, I guess. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that um, as, a, yeah. as a case study of, of water diplomacy? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought it up because the Mekong River Basin has been a, a very strong interest of mine for the last 15 plus years. So the Mekong River is based in Southeast Asia and it's shared by six states. Um, it starts in China, and then it runs through Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, uh, Cambodia, and Vietnam. 
Earlier this year, actually, the Mekong was in the news because there were very low uh, water levels. And that was a, a major concern for the downstream countries like those um, in the Delta. So Vietnam, that's the uh, the most downstream country within this major river system. They were v- very much worried that there was very little water running through the river system. So this was, again, in the media We know what's happening in Myanmar right now with the coup d'etat. So uh, it raises serious questions about how development in general in this country is going to go ahead now that we see a huge turmoil in the political regime. What what will happen to all these projects that were planned around the, the river? What kind of issues would there be when it comes to dam development in the future? So there's lots of big questions there. And in many ways, the Mekong has entered a very interesting phase where there has been a series of major hydropower projects being built on the mainstream. For for many, many decades, already from the 50s, 1950s, there were plans to develop these mainstream dams. But it was it, it always remained on paper. And it's only been in the last decade or so that we have the first dams being physically built And that is a huge game changer in the sense that it breaks up the river. If you have a dam, it physically fragments the river. And this is going to have big implications to the ecosystem and the health of the river, not to mention how people will adapt to the changing water levels, adapt to the changing water availability for their subsistence farming, for example, or for larger irrigation projects um, and the way in which hydropower development will occur in this region. So it's a very dynamic region. It's facing one of the biggest challenges in terms of political regime change, as well as these massive uh, infrastructure project development plans going ahead. And so it's really reignited interest in seeing how water diplomacy can be be done in this region when there are so many competing water uses, lots of countries involved, and also lots of money involved. You know, dams don't happen just out of thin air. There's a lot of money that has gone into making all of these plans into real physical manifestations. And it really is fascinating because it, it sits at the very heart of what has been, you know, the, in many ways, the, the growth zone, the, the area that has just kind of accelerated in part because of China's rise. Um, but also when we think about COVID, you know, the response from many of these countries has been very successful and effective. And it might point towards this being a centre of world power and economic power and, and the river being part of that story. Just on on the the dam point, how much is this? Is there a conflict between? Because obviously dams pr- provide, in one in one sense, green energy, which is vital for development, vital for these countries in their continued economic rise. How much is this being driven by a, a kind of a trying to reduce carbon emissions while also continuing to develop? Yeah, so I think globally, dams are being recognized as the better alternative. The hydropower energy is a cleaner, greener form of energy. And I think the dam development in this Mekong region goes to a certain extent to address some of the the concerns around climate change. But I think the bigger reason for, for the dam development is the pure demand for electricity, that there is a huge demand for lighting up cities and, and providing electricity for industry. 
So what's very interesting with the Mekong region is that while there are certain dams that are generating electricity, the electricity is also being transmitted. It's, it's being transported around the region. So it's not being consumed where it's being made, as it were. So a lot of the electricity that's produced in Laos, for example, is being um, sent to Thailand so that we can uh, propel economic activities within uh, Thailand. So it's, it's in many ways, it's about regional uh, demand and supply for electricity. And it's, it's also, you know, there is a certain narrative that hydropower is the better alternative, that it is better than um, dirty coal or looking into gas where there's potentially a limit to how much there is available. So hydropower development is really reflecting the, the pace of economic development in the region. And also it underpins the lifestyle changes um, and the export uh, trade conditions that these countries are part of. Because first of all, if there wasn't a changed lifestyle, there wouldn't be so much electricity being demanded, right? So if the urban centers, if the urban population wasn't growing, there would probably not be as much demand. If these countries weren't doing so much um, industry or being uh, exporters of agricultural goods or other um, industrialized products, then there probably wouldn't be so much a demand for electricity. So, so we, we need to think about what's behind this drive for electricity. And quite often it's about lifestyles. It's about trade. It's about the way in which there's a globalized, at least a regionalized uh, interconnected reasons for wanting to use electricity and needing energy. In this pandemic, we've all become a bit used to these big organisations, international organisations in which governments come together to support um, or respond to crises. In the case of the pandemic, the WHO, what is the equivalent for water? Where, where are these issues being discussed or tackled or is it a region by region basis? Well, I'm sure there will be some organizations who would like to say we are the one. <laughs> but I would say, um, in my opinion, that it's a very fragmented institutional landscape mm. in the sense that there are many organizations that are working. There are many international organizations, conferences, professional societies uh, that work in this field. And they have various regional focus, for example. But what's very interesting is that there, in many ways, when it comes to water diplomacy, there is no one international authority that doles out the rules or the guidelines or the regulations when it comes to water diplomacy. It very much is um, down to bilateral or multilateral initiatives. One of the very interesting aspects, though, is that water diplomacy or negotiations around water have always been wrapped up with um, donor assistance as well. So many donors have put um, efforts towards capacity building or helping set up river basin organizations that can be used in different river basins around the world so that there can be a foundation to, to have these uh, dialogue or to offer the platform or to offer the opportunities for countries to come together to, to discuss. So because water, as I said, is so fundamental to many economic activities, 
Um, while we, of course, do see UN agencies taking part in these discussions, it's also about development aid as well. And we see donor, uh, donor agencies, donor organizations, governments, um, including our own British government that has in the past, um, done a lot of capacity building or provided programmatic funds to look at water governance as well. And is that kind of reflective of the world system as it was in that when we think about, when I look over or you you see some of these areas where we think perhaps water conflicts may occur, they are parts of the world that traditionally perhaps have not sat at the top table, but increasingly will. And so do we think that that might force onto the agenda and create new institutions? Might we see a change in the, the international infrastructure to support water diplomacy? I think that's a really interesting question and something certainly a lot of policymakers might might also be curious to, to, to think about in the sense that a lot of water diplomacy in the past has been done through a historical framework in the sense that there are many countries that became independent and they therefore became party to these international rivers. And there was a need for a platform for discussion. Uh, So they joined various multilateral or bilateral initiatives. And so, you know, it it comes out of a a post-colonial history, the way in which there was a a setup of the Cold War, for example. So in the Mekong, where I've worked, we clearly see these Cold War geopolitical setup in the sense that certain countries were being supported by the US or other Western governments, while as certain other governments had a more communist political party in place. And the Mekong was seen as as a, a place where political ideologies were being played out. But overcoming those political uh, ideologies there were joint technical committees, there were joint studies that were being done. So it's it, it's a very interesting reflection of the wider political context in which water is debated and discussed into the future. It's, it's, it'll also be very interesting to see who takes up leadership. And, and yeah. I think in many ways, that's where the geopolitical um, strategizing of different countries will come into play. Um, you can, for example, demonstrate leadership through good governance, for example, or trying to be a champion of international water law and applying it to your various river basins. So there might be some trends towards that, and there might be some donor agencies that want to support these leaders or champions. But it, it could also be uh, another story in the sense that there could be certain uh, powerful river basins who put in place agreements that are seemingly cooperative, but actually uh, perpetuate inequalities or perpetuate unsustainable water uses. And so I think this is a a space where we have to look carefully into thinking how these political leaderships play out when it comes to inequalities, when it comes to harm, when it comes to sustainability. Moving it out of, I guess, as you say, a, uh, sort of a form of aid and seeing it as, as more a form of part of diplomacy alongside other areas. Yeah, I think there will always be a, a role for aid in the, the water landscape, as it were, because there's a lot of engineering skills and know-how that countries can share and transfer. There's a lot of other kinds of knowledge sharing about good practice, good lessons learned that can be facilitated. 
And there really is, in many cases, a, a fundamental lack of infrastructure, whether it's taps, wells, pipes, etc. So there, there always will be a role for development aid. But I think the, the sort of broader debate and discussion about what is the future of water diplomacy and how can we think about equality, how can we think about sustainability, are really big questions that I think not just the basin countries but also international organizations, various donor countries have to grapple with. And before I ask you the big question, which is some of the things we need to consider as a world to uh, enhance or support water diplomacy globally, I just want to discuss, because we've talked about some some particular areas, whether it's Southeast Asia or when we think about places like the Nile and Egypt, but should we also see this not just about that water being dependent for the countries that the river runs through, but actually dependent for areas that will increasingly find it difficult to farm. So I think about the United States, the United States likes to think of itself as self-sufficient, but large parts of the US, because of climate change, might not be able to farm any longer. And so they will be dependent on certain parts of the world, perhaps for certain crops or certain food. So should we view it through that lens that it, that it isn't just about saying, okay, we've got our water here, that we actually need to think forward about what climate might do to areas we previously thought were great for farming and were self-sufficient in terms of water? That is such a fantastic question because that's exactly it. Water, even though it might be from far away, even if you might be talking about the Nile, which is very far away, or the Mekong, which is far away, even here in, in the UK, we are reliant on other river basins because we demand food from these river basins. So whenever we make our choices as consumers in the supermarket or in our online supermarket choices as we do right now, we, we really are using other regions' water resources. And so thinking about the sustainability of other river basins is very much a concern for us. And I don't think we can uh, separate and parse out our water concerns with the Niles or the Mekongs because of the fact that we have such a globalized food trade, because of the fact that we are very much reliant on other countries to provide food for us, for the fact that maybe we've moved out of agriculture or that climate-wise, hydrologically, we're not suited to make certain crops, certain foods, certain products. All of these reasons make it all the more reason why we have to understand what other river basins are facing in terms of water sustainability challenges and whether through our demands for food, whether through our trade deals, we could be playing a part in exacerbating the inequalities of basins far away. And I think this is a very useful um, point to keep in mind that our actions also do have implications abroad far away but still very real. So that brings us to the big things we can do, or the big things that, that, that we should be doing in this area. It's International Water Day. We're going to be celebrating that at King's. We've got lots planned. And I know, please do check out the King's Water Hub. We're going to put the notes in the, in the show notes. But what would you say are the key things that you think governments uh, and international organizations should be doing in regards to water diplomacy? I think there's a real opportunity for us to learn from our past failures of water diplomacy. In many ways, 
these failures have tended to focus only on the benefits or the advantages to only a portion of states or communities. So while we might have a cooperative agreement in place, they only serve a portion of the, the upstream states or a portion of the communities who can take advantage of these agreements. And rather than creating more seemingly cooperative solutions or cooperative arrangements, we really need to think about how can we address the existing harms and inequalities? How can we really address the unsustainable practices? And so in many ways, water diplomacy has to redefine and redetermine who loses out when water is used, how water is used and prioritized for what purposes, who's bearing the burden, whether it's a particular country, whether it's a particular community, whether it's a particular industry, whether it's a particular water user. I think we have to really look into our past failures and try and redress to, to try and redefine what water diplomacy. It, it really needs to work for all of those who want to use water and not just for a portion of the people who are privileged enough to, to use it, who are privileged enough to be able to determine the scope of cooperation so that works for them. So that's one real opportunity I think we can, we can look at addressing. And the other point um, is to think about how there could be more ways in which we could be flexible and take into account uncertainty. So in the past, a lot of international agreements have very much been formalized agreements that are you know, signed off by heads of state. And, and it's, it's, it's a very formal, very particular kind of thing. But we all know that climate change is going to be a, a big issue. There's been increased incidents of droughts and floods. There's changes in trade and political economy, food, uh, so how, how can we ensure that whatever arrangement is placed can cope with the, the different changes and the different trends? And here, I think this aspect of flexibility or, or at least taking into account of uncertainty and thinking about uncertainty can be done at the forefront. And here, I think a lot of the scientific community can help out providing new knowledge, new insights uh, to tackle this issue. Well, it just leads me to say, Dr. Naho Muramachi, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.